Let me invite you to turn now to the book of Genesis. This morning, chapter 32. Genesis 32. Finally, after weeks and chapters of sordid details in Jacob's life, we finally get to the great change this morning. A chapter, two chapters that are as lovely as the previous chapters were depressing. So let's read chapters 32 and 33 together. You read along silently and follow me as I read aloud. Now as Jacob went on his way, he'd been fleeing from his brother. He'd been sent away by now his father Laban. And we pick him up on his way back home. As Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw him, saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose the same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, then he, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he was wrestling with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob became Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterwards Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place is named Sukkoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Father, we come to you now and I pray that um, this gathered group of people will join with me in wrestling with you for a blessing this morning. That we would not let you go unless you bless us. God, that we would hang on your words this morning. That we would long to hear from you. That we would battle against the distractions that may keep us from hearing or hearing um, with uh, obedient hearts. And we wrestle with you now. That you would bless us. 
from your word. And I pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last two weeks, uh, Toby and I have had some friends, a couple, who have been in Siberia um, because they have been finalizing the adoption of a little Russian boy that they brought home this week. Um, It's been a long process that has dragged out for over a year. Um, And during that year, there have been miles and miles of red tape, and several times they've been convinced that it was all a lost cause and they weren't going to get to bring him home after all. They filled out hundreds of pages of paperwork. They have made two trips to Russia. They have spent thousands and thousands of dollars. They have prayed every single day about this boy. They have shed many, many tears. And finally, last week, we received an email from them that began with these happy words. Well, it's official. We are now three. Alexander Alexandrovich Mechev is now Edmund Alexander Huffman. And we rejoiced and were very thrilled to get that letter. But here's the question I want to ask. Why did they begin their letter with that, those sentences? Why not just simply say the adoption is done? It went through. Why didn't they start their letter just by saying Edmund is ours? Why did they make us go through the trouble and the mental contortions to try to figure out how to pronounce these names? The reason why is because names are important, right? Names are important. That's why parents spend so long looking through these books trying to pick names for their children. Names are important. And the changing of a name is especially important. In this little case, the sentence Alexander Alexandrovich Mechev is now Edmund Alexander Huffman means the world to these parents that he has a new name. Edmund's new name symbolizes that now he has new parents and he has a new home and he has a new hope and a new future, a chance to hear the gospel. His new name means a lot to these parents. And a new name is almost always a symbol of new things that are happening in someone's life. That's why adoptive parents are so excited when they get the adoption certificate that has their last name on it. Or when they get the child's new social security card with his new name. They are thrilled because it symbolizes a new beginning. It's also why young girls who are engaged to be married take a piece of paper and sit in their college class and write uh, what their new name is going to be over and over and over again instead of listening to the professor's lecture. Not because they need to learn how to spell it, but because they are thrilled at thinking about the possibility of the new life they're about to begin together. And writing out her new name is a symbol of that new beginning that's to come. So again, I say to you, a new name is almost always the symbol of a new beginning. And that's what we have happening in Genesis chapters 32 and 33, isn't it? Jacob, the deceiver, Jacob, whose name used to mean supplanter, meets God in these pages. And his life is completely and irreversibly changed. And as a symbol of his new life, as a symbol that he's finally been adopted into God's family, Jacob gets a new name here, Israel, which means he strives with God, verse 28. We call the kind of change that happened with Jacob, this change that, that caused him to need a new name, this kind of change when it happens to Jacob or when it happens to one of us is called conversion. Or Jesus, when he spoke to Nicodemus, called it being born again. That's what's happening to Jacob in these passages. Jacob is being born again. Jacob is being converted from a lying, deceiving, selfish sinner into a humble and contrite man of God. Beginning of chapter 
32, he is as wayward as he can be. And at the end of chapter 33, he is a worshiper of God. Jacob is being born again in these passages. And this chapter, these chapters are a reminder that we need to be born again too, aren't they? Jacob had heard of God. Jacob even knew about God. But Jacob needed to be born again. Jacob needed to be converted. And each of us, if we are going to be fit for heaven, needs to come to a life-changing encounter with God like Jacob. Now I want you to remember that Jacob was chosen by God before he was ever born. You remember that? Before he was ever born, the angel said, listen, the older will serve the younger. Jacob is is going to to be uh, greater than his brother Esau. Jacob was chosen by God. But Jacob still needed to be brought by God to the place where he met God and where his life was radically changed from the inside out. It wasn't enough for him to just say, well, I'm one of God's elect. He had to come to a place where he met God and his life was changed. Jacob still needed to be born again. He still needed a new identity. And the same is true for us. We are in a very privileged position this morning. To hear the word of God, but that just because we're in a position to hear the word of God, just because we were born into a Christian family or attending a church regularly, doesn't mean that we don't need to personally, in a very real way, encounter Jesus and be changed from the inside out. None of us were born Christians, were we? None of us were born lovers of God. Therefore, each of us needs to encounter God in such a way that our whole lives are altered and a new beginning arises out of the ashes of an old sinful past. Every one of us needs to be converted or born again. And I would just suggest to you that as we look at it this morning, Jacob's encounter with God can serve for us as a bit of an example or a a paradigm for how God tends to meet with people, how God maybe has met with some of us or how he might someday meet with us, maybe even today. We can learn a lot about our own salvation experience from looking at Jacob's. So if you are thinking about um, what we're going to do today, you might think of it as us dissecting, dissecting Jacob's conversion experience. Or you might call it an anatomy of conversion from the life of, ja- life of Jacob. What does it look like when somebody really encounters God and is saved? And I see just three main things that happen with Jacob that I believe will also happen with us if and when we meet God. Three, three main points. The first thing that happened to Jacob was a crisis Jacob had a crisis, and the turnaround in Jacob's life began with this crisis. There was a moment in the beginning of chapter 32 when God turned up the heat and tightened the screws on Jacob until he became quite uncomfortable. See, chapter 32, we find Jacob at the beginning of the chapter in between a rock and a hard place, don't we? In front of Jacob is Esau with 400 men, and for all he knows, Esau is coming to take his head off. Behind Jacob is his father-in-law Laban, who's not too pleased with him either. So if Jacob goes forward, he's, in his mind, marching into a minefield. And if he goes backward, he knows that he's already burned his bridges that way, and so he's got nowhere to go. He can't go forward. He can't go backwards. He's stuck. And, verse 7, he is afraid. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob was stuck. Jacob was afraid. And in verses 9 through 12, you can go back and scan it over. You find Jacob doing what many of us do when we are stuck and afraid. And what we should do when we're stuck and afraid. You find Jacob praying. 
Just listen to verse 11 in particular. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. I just noticed something here. Jacob is in big trouble. But isn't it a mercy of God that he was in big trouble? Wasn't it God's grace that Jacob was in a crisis? Of course it was. It was kind of the Lord to drop Jacob in the middle of this crisis so that he would finally turn his attention to God. God has been working throughout Jacob's life and Jacob has continued to ignore him. But here, finally, Jacob stops in the middle of what he's doing and turns his attention to God. Only because he thought he was about to get killed. What a mercy times of crisis can be. Some of you can say amen to that because it was precisely in the middle of a time of crisis that God finally got your attention. For some of you, it took the pain of sickness or the loss of a loved one or the fear of death or a national emergency or the breakup of some important relationship before you finally turned your attention to God. And those things were very painful, but it was worth it. All of these things can be used by God to wake us up. Times of crisis are mercies of God. So sometimes an emergency room or a graveside or a car crash is the best place for us to be, particularly if we haven't yet turned to the Lord. Sometimes God's appointed means of getting our attention is to get us stuck and afraid. So I just say to you this morning, if your heart is turned away from the Lord this morning, you might pray that God gets you stuck and afraid. Or if you know someone this morning, a loved one who is a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, you might pray that God gets them stuck and afraid so that maybe they would finally turn their attention to the Lord. Crisis times can be an incredible open door through which Jesus may walk. So Jacob came to a point of crisis, but I want you to see something even more important about Jacob's crisis as we read along through the rest of chapter 32. The most obvious crisis that he was stuck and afraid, he thought he was going to die. But his brokenness before God didn't arise simply out of the fact that he thought he was going to die. He was also quite on edge because his sins had finally caught up with him. His sins had finally caught up with him. This was a bigger crisis actually deep down inside than the crisis with Esau. Jacob knew that the reason why his bridges were burned with Laban and the reason why right now his heart was in his throat because of what Esau might do to him All of this was because of his own sin, and Jacob knew that. He had deceived both of these men, he had lied to both of these men, and he knew that he wouldn't blame them himself if they killed him. Jacob knew that his sins had finally caught up with him. And furthermore, Jacob realized that in all of his raging, in all of his scheming, in all of his lying, in all of his sexual immorality, he had not just sinned against Esau or Laban or his wives, He had sinned against God. Jacob was beginning to realize that. Jacob was beginning to realize he might die at the hands of Esau, but if he died at the hands of Esau, it would be God's just retribution. It would be God that would bring it down upon him. That's why he goes to God to take it away from him. He knew God was the one who might be sending Esau to kill him. It seems like Jacob wasn't simply afraid of Esau who could kill his body, but Jacob was beginning to fear the Lord who could destroy both his body and his soul in hell. And he voices his concern about his sinfulness in verse 10 when he says to God, I am unworthy of all this loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown 
to your servant. It's a very important statement, especially coming from the mouth of a prideful man like Jacob. He finally realizes, I am unworthy. And it took a crisis of near death, and it took a crisis of great conviction of his sin before he was willing to say it. Jacob finally had realized how much he'd offended God. And I'll just submit to you this morning as we're looking at this as an example or a model that anyone who was ever truly converted, anyone whose life was ever really changed by Jesus, came to God through a similar kind of crisis, through a similar crisis of conviction of sin. No one ever got to heaven or to Jesus without first having a frightening encounter with their own sinfulness. No one ever gets to heaven without first realizing that they are utterly unworthy to go to heaven. Everyone who meets God meets Him first through a crisis of conviction about how sinful they really are. I just ask you, if you come to the place that Jacob was at in verse 10, have you come to the realization that you are unworthy and that you need a Savior? Have you had a frightening realization of just how sinful you really are? And what we all deserve and what you deserve from a holy and just and righteous God. Now be careful, I'm not asking you simply to realize that no one is perfect. We all know that. I'm not asking you to agree with the fact that all have sinned, Romans 3.23. Most of us, I think, would agree with that. What I'm asking you and what I'm asking me is, have you and have I had a realistic, specific conviction that I am a sinner? I am unworthy. That's the question. That's what was happening with Jacob. I think Jacob knew that everybody was a sinner, but Jacob had never realized how much of a sinner he was. And maybe some of us haven't either. you ever seen your sinfulness so clearly that it seemed to you that the flames of hell were almost nipping at your heels and you were afraid because you were a sinner? That's the specific conviction. This conviction that says, I am unworthy. Not a general realization that everyone is a sinner that drives us to the cross. No one ever came to the cross because everyone was a sinner. We come to the cross because we realize we are sinners. I am a sinner. And that's the ultimate crisis that led to Jacob's conversion, and that's the ultimate crisis that leads to any of our coming to Jesus. We'll be drawn to God only if we undergo a crisis of conviction. Now, Lord willing, you won't have to go through a crisis with your health or your family in order for God to get your attention. Sometimes God does that. But everyone that ever came to God came through a crisis of conviction about their own sinfulness. Everyone who was ever converted was converted because they knew that they were a wretched, miserable sinner who didn't deserve God's grace, but who were getting it as a free gift. Have you been convinced of that? Have you been convinced that you desperately, desperately need a Savior? That you desperately, desperately need a Savior? And if you haven't been convinced, then are you sure that you're really converted? That's the first thing that happened with Jacob. He came to a crisis, mainly a crisis of conviction of his own sinfulness and unworthiness before the Lord. But then a second thing happened. He had an encounter, a crisis and then an encounter in verses 22 through 30, an encounter with God. No one can be saved without a deep conviction of sin, but conviction of sin alone will not save anyone. Just because you feel bad because you're a sinner doesn't mean that you're saved. The only salvation that is out there is when conviction of sin leads us to have a saving encounter with God. So let's look at Jacob's encounter with God and see what we can learn from it. 
I want you first to take notice in verses 22, 23, and 24 that as night fell, Jacob sent his family away and made sure that he himself was all alone. Listen, he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Why did Jacob want to be alone? Maybe because he thought that if Esau came to kill him in the night, if he sent his wives and children away, at least he would only get Jacob and not the rest of his family. That's one possibility for why Jacob wanted to be alone. But it's also very possible that Jacob wanted to be alone in verse 24 because in verse 10, Jacob had been convicted about his sinfulness before God and he knew that he needed to encounter God. He, needed, he knew that he needed to meet with God and to be forgiven. Jacob was under deep conviction of sin, and Jacob, verse 7, was desperately afraid. And I think Jacob sent his family away here precisely so that he would have time alone to wrestle with God. To plead for forgiveness and mercy from God. And that's a good lesson for us, isn't it? If you want to meet with God, you need to get alone where there are no distractions and where you can wrestle and where you can hear him. That goes for all of us whether we're Christians or not. But it's especially relevant for those of you who might be under conviction of sin and not yet converted. You've seen how sinful you are. You know that you need relief. You know that you want relief. And what needs to happen is for you to encounter Jesus face to face. You need to meet with God. But you know, that won't happen if you leave this morning and go home and watch the Bengals game. God's probably not going to meet you on channel 12 or whatever channel they're on. It won't happen if you go home today and you get on the internet and play games all afternoon. If you want to meet with God, if you're under conviction of sin, you've got to get alone like Jacob got alone so that you can meet with him and wrestle with him and plead with him and pray to him and get answers from him. When you're under conviction of sin, the best place to be is alone where you can encounter and wrestle with God in his word and in prayer. And when Jacob got alone, verse 24 tells us what happened. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. Who was that man? Well, in verse 30, Jacob tells us who he was. He says at the end of the verse, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob says, I was wrestling with this man, and you know who it was? It was God. I was wrestling with God. I saw God face to face. And more specifically, I want to show to you that Jacob wasn't just wrestling with God in general, but he was wrestling specifically with the pre-incarnate Jesus. Whenever you see God showing up in the Old Testament in human form, Bible students understand that this is particularly the second person of the Trinity, namely Jesus, that we're seeing here. You see him again in the fiery furnace uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whenever God shows up in the human form in the Old Testament, we're looking at Jesus. Here's how we know that. One of the reasons, anyway. John 6, 46, Jesus informs us that no one has ever seen God the Father. He says, no one's seen the Father. So Jacob didn't see the Father in verse 24. Who did he see? Who is God in visible human form? Well, it must have been Jesus. So Jacob encountered and wrestled with a man In verse 24, he tells us in verse 30 that it was God that he saw face to face. And we know from reading the rest of the scriptures that the particular person of God that Jacob met was Jesus in verse uh, 32. Excuse me, verse 24. 
Now, why is this important? Why is it important to, to spend two minutes uh, describing to you how we know that this was Jesus? Well, simply because it's a hint for us toward the fact that if we want to encounter God, we must encounter him through Jesus as well. We cannot approach God on our own. We cannot see the Father any more than Jacob could see the Father. But we can come to the Father through the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. We can come through the blood of Jesus and see God face to face. We can come to Jesus and approach boldly because he has died for us and because he has risen for us. Jesus is the go-between who links us with the Father. So when we are under conviction of sin or when we have any other need which we need to take to God, we too, like Jacob, go to Jesus who lived a perfect life on our behalf, who died a sacrificial death on our behalf, who has risen from the dead so that we might walk in newness of life. That's who we go to. If we're convicted of sin this morning, if you are convicted of sin this morning, if you're not sure that you're a Christian this morning, you need, like Jacob, to encounter Jesus, the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and for your own. I just urge you, if you're here and you know already that you're not a Christian, that you need to encounter Jesus Let the rest of this sermon point you towards him and then be seeking him on your own as well. Notice, though, a third aspect of Jacob's encounter with God, with Jesus. We notice that he got alone. We notice that he met Jesus. Now we're noticing that his encounter with Jesus was intense. It was intense. Read verses 24 through 26. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. That alone would tell us that was intense. When he saw that he had not prevailed, meaning the man, meaning Jesus, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is an intense wrestling match. It's happening all night long, all the way until daybreak. Jacob wrestled with Jesus until daybreak. Now, what does that mean? Why was Jacob wrestling with Jesus? Was Jacob wrestling against Jesus, trying to conquer Jesus? No. Why was Jacob wrestling with Jesus? He was trying to wrestle something out of Jesus. He was trying to wrestle a blessing out of Jesus. Verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was wrestling to get forgiveness out of him, to get help out of him, because he thought that because of his sins he was about to die. Jacob was doing physically wrestling what we do spiritually when we earnestly pray. You've heard of people saying, talking about wrestling with God in prayer. That's where they get this. When you're earnestly praying, pleading with God, struggling with God, you're doing spiritually and with your voice what Jacob was doing physically and with his voice on this night. He was pleading with God for mercy. He was begging God for it. He was wrestling, trying to wrestle help out of him. And he said, I'm not going to give up until I get an answer. I will not let you go until you bless me. Now you may be asking this question. Why did God make Jacob wrestle all night? Or how is it that Jacob was able even to do it all night long with God? He's wrestling with Jesus after all. Well, verse 25 that we just read reminds us that Jesus could have ended the encounter with Jacob any time he wanted to. All he had to do was touch his thigh and Jacob was crippled for the rest of his life. So the length of the bout between Jacob and Jesus wasn't um, because it wasn't fairly even matched. That's not what's going on here. So why did Jesus allow, why did Jesus make Jacob grapple all through the night? 
I believe the reason why Jesus kept wrestling with him and didn't defeat him, but didn't let him win, made it go all night long, is to see if Jacob really wanted the blessing that he was asking for. To see how serious Jacob was about what he was asking. Jacob was saying, I need forgiveness, I need hope, I need you to help me. I'm about to die in my sins and I need your help. And Jesus was testing him. Jesus was keeping him just at bay to see if he was going to prove that he meant what he said by being persistent in wrestling, persistent in prayer. And Jacob proved that he did really want what he was asking for, didn't he? Jacob proved that he did really want mercy. And so in that sense, Jacob prevailed. We read in verse 28 that Jacob prevailed when he wrestled with God. That's what it means. Not that he defeated God, but that he got from God what he had been asking. He prevailed in prayer. And here again is a lesson for us all. Sometimes God makes us wrestle for a time in prayer before he allows us to prevail. Sometimes God makes us wait and pray and wait and pray and wait and pray before we prevail. Sometimes God doesn't answer right away, not because he's unwilling to answer, but because he wants to see if we are really serious about what we're asking And again, this applies especially to someone who is just coming to know the Lord, just coming to an encounter with the Lord. When a sinner is converted, sometimes God makes them wrestle and wrestle and struggle with assurance and struggle with, am I really a Christian for a while? Being a Christian, becoming a Christian is not a snap. It's a matter of an encounter with God. And when you encounter with God, that's a serious, intense thing, isn't it? It's not encountering God is not just filling out a card or repeating after me. That's not encountering God. Encountering God wears you out. So when someone really comes to meet Jesus, there are often tears, there's often exhaustion, there's a great sense of relief when they finally get the answer. That's what it looks like to encounter God and to be converted. So sometimes true conversion comes only after an intense period of wrestling with God. A new identity in Jesus comes only after a period of persistently praying, God, open my eyes, help me to believe. An assurance of salvation often comes only after a period of grappling with an I will not let you go until you bless me kind of mentality. That's what was happening with Jacob. That's what's happening with anyone who's ever been converted. They met God and it was intense and they had to wrestle and plead and pray and finally they prevailed. So let me ask you, have you wrestled with Jesus and prevailed? I'm not saying, have you filled out the card, or are you a member of the church, or have you been baptized? Have you really wrestled with Jesus? Have you encountered Jesus? Have you had this intense, emotional meeting with Jesus? And when I say emotional, I don't mean that everybody shows their emotions in the same way, but there is an intensity happening inside of you when you meet Jesus. I'm also not saying that everyone's wrestling match will be equally long or equally intense. Some people who are coming out of a horrible background of sin may wrestle with Jesus for 10 or 12 weeks or 10 or 12 months before they finally prevail and believe and are sure that they're saved. Some people may wrestle for 10 or 12 hours through the night like Jacob. Some people may only wrestle for 10 or 12 minutes. You may wrestle and by the end of this sermon, God may convert you. The the time is not the importance and the the level of intensity is not the importance. but, But have you really wrestled? Have you really met God? Or are you just going on a few things that you know in your head? No one was ever saved without going through a bit of wrestling and then coming out with a definite peace and assurance in Christ. So ask yourself, have I ever wrestled with Jesus to the point 
where I am sure that I have met him and sure that I am saved? Have I striven with an I will not let you go unless you bless me mindset until you prevailed? I hope that you have. But if you have not, know this. Relief for your anxious soul is waiting for you in Jesus. But you're going to have to meet him. And you're going to have to wrestle with him. And if you wrestle with him, the Bible promises that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He may make you wrestle for a while, but if you're intent on wrestling, if you're intent on the blessing, if you're intent on being saved, God will let you prevail and you will be saved. The relief that comes with salvation comes through a genuine life-altering wrestling match, an encounter with God in Christ. So Jacob had a crisis of conviction of sin. He had an encounter with the living Jesus. And finally, we see that there was a great change in the rest of the passage. Conversion is a result of a life encounter, life-altering encounter, wrestling match with Jesus. But the question is, what do we look after we've gotten done, what do we look like after we've gotten done wrestling? What does a person look like who has really wrestled with Jesus? And as we walk through the rest of the passage, we're going to see what happened to Jacob. The great preacher in England, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was once asked, what does a person look like after they've truly met God? And he pointed them to Genesis 32, chapter, uh, chapter 32, verse 31, and he says, a person who's truly met with God walks with a limp. A person who's truly met with God walks with a limp. And I think that's incredibly perceptive, because what he was saying is, after encountering the living Christ, Jacob was crippled forever. He was crippled physically, verse 31, but he was also crippled forever in regard to his ego. Jacob was humbled after encountering Jesus. He could no longer strut around arrogantly like he had done before. As you follow his story along, you'll see that Jacob's rough edges got smoothed out. And Jacob's uh, encounter with Jesus turned his pride into lowliness. This is exactly what Lloyd-Jones meant. The man who has encountered with Christ walks with a spiritual limp. The man who has met Jesus is forever humbled. That's what always happens to someone who is really converted. They have been humbled. They've seen their sin. They've seen what they deserve because of their sin. They've looked at Jesus and seen how much better He is than what we are. They've looked at Jesus and seen how much it costs Him to save a wretch like me. And they said, I'm not as good as I thought I was. They are crippled. They are humbled. They say with the psalmist, Psalm 22, 6, I'm a worm and not a man. Their whole look, outlook on life and particularly on themselves is changed. And their humility affects the way they treat other people too. You can see that play out when Jacob finally encounters Esau in chapter 33, verses 1 through 3. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. You see that? The last time Jacob and Esau were together, Jacob was busy trying to steal the blessing from Esau and put himself above Esau. And now when they encounter each other again after Jacob has met Jesus, Jacob is bowing low at his feet seven times to show his humility before Esau. 
It's a true sign of anyone who's ever been converted. They see themselves as lowly and unworthy sinners. They see that their only hope is in Jesus. And I just ask you if that describes you this morning. Have you gotten to the end of yourself yet and realized I'm really not a great person? I'm not even a good person. No one's good. But God, I'm desperately in need of a Savior. Have you been humbled? And if you haven't been humbled, can you be sure that you've really met Jesus? I don't think you can. Notice also that Jacob's encounter with Jesus made him generous. It made him humble. It made him generous. Verses 4 through 11. He gave this great gift to his brother. Now, Jacob had already planned to give Esau this elaborate gift of livestock, but his original plan was to give it to him to appease him, kind of as a bribe. Take these gifts and please don't kill me. So he wanted to appease Esau. He wanted to lessen his anger with the gift. But when we come to chapter 33, verse 4, we realize that all this appeasement was unnecessary. Esau was ready and glad to forgive him in verse 4. He fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. In verse 10, Esau didn't want to take Jacob's cattle and his herds as a bribe. He said, no, you keep it for yourself. I don't need that. I forgive you. I'm your brother. So here was Jacob's out, wasn't it? Here was Jacob's opportunity to say, I really didn't want to give him all that stuff anyways. I was just doing it to save my own neck, and I'm glad he didn't want it. I'll take those things back. Thank you very much, Esau. He had an opportunity to say that here, didn't he? But he didn't. Instead, he pleaded with Esau, please take my gift. The gift was no longer a bribe. The gift was now a simple gift of love. I love you. I see your face as the face of God, meaning I'm so glad to see you. I couldn't be more thrilled to see anyone in the world but you, my brother. Please take this gift from me. So Jacob, who had made a career of taking, now becomes remarkable for his giving. He became humble, he became generous. And this is another lesson for us. Not only that if we meet Jesus, we'll be generous, but when we encounter Jesus, when we are genuinely converted, what happens is we leave our old sinful habits behind. Jacob's biggest problem was that he was selfish. That's why he deceived. That's why he stole. Because he was selfish. But here we find him leaving his old sinful habits behind. He leaves behind lying. He leaves behind stealing. And he enters into a whole new way of living. And when we meet Jesus, we will leave behind our past, our sinful habits as well. Now that's not to say that it won't be a struggle. If you have struggled long with sinful habits, it will be a hard battle and a long battle to fight your way to getting victory over them sometimes. And it's not to say that sometimes we won't slip and fall. But it is to say that the general direction of a person who's met Jesus is turned out of their old way of life into a new way of living. It's as simple as that. That's what happened with Jacob. That's what happens with all of us. That's what the New Testament teaches So I just ask you again as we proceed, have you entered into a new way of living? Have you really left the old behind and the new has come? Have you found yourself on a new path? I'm not asking if you're perfect. I'm not urging you to try to work your way to heaven by doing good works. I'm simply asking if you've met Jesus and if he's really turned your life around. Can you see a change in yourself since the day that you met Jesus? And if the answer is no, then you have to ask yourself if you've really met Jesus. Jesus changes lives. Finally, notice that after encountering Jesus, Jacob became a worshiper. He became humble. He became generous. He became a worshiper. Look at the last verse of chapter 30, verse 20. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Jacob's building an altar to the Lord now, just like his father 
Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had done. Why did Isaac and Abraham build altars to the Lord? They built altars to the Lord so that they could make sacrifices on them. And why did they make sacrifices? So that the blood of those bulls and goats could remind them of how badly they needed a Savior. They made sacrifices constantly, not because they thought that they really needed to do something for God, but because these sacrifices were a reminder that they needed something from God. They needed a Savior. And Jacob is finally building this altar and realizing that he needed a Savior. He needed someone who would die for his sins. Jacob finally became a worshiper of the coming Messiah. And Jacob also finally learned that the Lord was his God. If you've been here the recent weeks, you know that I've made note of the fact that in previous sermons I've made note of the fact that Jacob never once called God his God. He always referred to God as the God of my father Isaac, but he never said the Lord my God, never once before this chapter. But now when he names the altar, he calls it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. You know what he's saying? He's saying, my life's been changed. I have a new name. My name is now Israel. And I have a new God, too. My God is now the Lord. My God, my name used to be Jacob, and my God used to be Jacob. Now my name's Israel, and my God is the Lord. He finally calls God his God. He finally becomes a worshiper of the Lord. And this is another true sign of those who have been converted. They worship the Lord. What I mean by that is not that just that they attend church, but that they love the Lord, that they talk about the Lord, that they serve the Lord, that they want to obey the Lord. You know, sometimes we get all, all tangled up and say, I wish I was better at witnessing and talking to people about Jesus. You know what will make you better at talking to people about Jesus if you just love Jesus more? You talk about the people that you love. The reason why I don't talk about Jesus as much as I should is because I don't love him as much as I should. Not because I need a program or, or someone to kind of smack me on the back of the head and say, you should be witnessing more. We talk about whom we love. We talk about what we worship. This person that has become a worshiper of the Lord like Jacob, their whole life is now about the Lord. They think of everything in relation to God. They organize their whole life around the Lord. They realize that they're not their own, but that they've been bought with a price. God is the center of their universe. Does that sound like you? Does that describe you? God is the center of my universe? Or is God just one day in seven? Or God just when you need something? Is God the center of your universe? That's what a worshiper of the Lord looks like. And if you're not a worshiper of the Lord, again, I ask you if you can be sure that you really belong to the Lord. Now, some of you may be saying to yourselves, come on, Pastor, this is a room full of church people. We're all the ones pretty much that are here every week. And you're preaching this message, calling into question whether or not we really know the Lord. Of course we know the Lord. We're the, we're the Christians. We're saved. Of course we are. Well, that may be true. I hope that it is true. I'd be thrilled if every one of you were a Christian. But I suspect that this is exactly the way that Jacob probably thought before Genesis chapter 32. Jacob probably thought everything was okay with him, too. After all, his daddy was a very religious man, the religious man. He himself had talked to God once. And one time he built a little pillar for him. Surely God loves me. Surely I'm okay, Jacob probably thought. I mean, I've made a few mistakes in my life, but nobody's perfect. And I'm sure that God will forgive me. I think that's the way Jacob thought. He had been around religion just enough to make him comfortable. 
with it. But he never savingly encountered Jesus. And that's important for us because the people who may be the most likely to be deceived about their own salvation are the people who are around religion all the time. Because it just seems like I must be okay if I'm around religion all the time. So it's not unlikely in any church gathering, in any place that you ever go, and it's not unlikely this morning that there may be some Jacobs in the room. In fact, it's probable that there are some people here this morning who think everything is okay because of some religious thing that they did one time. Jacob did a religious thing one time. I did a religious thing one time. It must be okay. If you've never truly met Jesus, then it's not okay. If you've never truly been convicted of your utter guiltiness before God, it's not okay. If you've never wrestled with Jesus until you know that you prevailed and you're sure that you're saved, it's not okay. And if your life hasn't radically changed directions, it's not okay. So my goal this morning has been, by God's grace, to bring you to a place of crisis. My hope has been that some of you would find yourself this morning trapped and afraid by God's word. So that God might meet you. Because I know what I already shared with you. It is when we are trapped and when we are afraid that an open door is there that Jesus might walk through. So I don't want you this morning to be miserable. But I question you and I question me this morning so that we will be sure that we are saved. And so that we will realize that we are hopeless unless we turn to Jesus. And I want every one of you to turn to Jesus. I want every one of you to be in heaven. But I know that you only get there unless God brings you to a crisis of conviction that leads to a genuine encounter with Jesus that results in a genuinely changed life. That's why I preach this way to a room full of church members. That's why I don't just assume that everything is okay with you. Not to insult you, but to awaken you. And to do all that I can to ensure, by God's grace, that your name is not merely written on a church roll, but that in heaven you have a new name written on the adoption certificate of the king that says for sure that heaven is where you belong. So I'm going to pray that that would be true of you and of me.